0: Welcome to Armenian Alliance Conversations, I'm Manyak Saakin. My guest today is Anna Asfatsaturian-Turkot. She is a lawyer, a politician, a philanthropist, a lecturer, a writer, and a human and political rights activist. She's a passionate, lifelong advocate for the Armenians, particularly the human rights and political rights of the people of Artsakh. In 1989, she and her family were forced to flee Baku, Azerbaijan when she was a child. She is one of the survivors of the mass ethnic cleansing of 300,000 Armenians from Azerbaijan during the First Artsakh War. In 2012, she published a memoir called Nowhere, A Story of Exile, which is based upon her journals beginning in Baku in 1988 and ending with her arrival in the United States in 1992. We will also be discussing the very important work of the Anna Astvat Zaturian turkot Foundation, which helps Armenians in Armenia and Artsakh. Anna Astvat Zaturian turkot is the president of the Westbrook Maine, City Council. She was first elected to serve on the Westbrook City Council in 2015. She has written and lectured extensively about Armenian issues in the United States, including for members of Congress. She has also spoken to the European Parliament about human rights, international law, and anti-Armenian racism. She has worked on initiatives for U.S. states to recognize the independence of Artsakh. She was doing great philanthropic projects in Armenia and Artsakh for many years, before formally launching the Anna Asfatzatorian-Turkot Foundation in 2020. Mrs. Asfatzatorian-Turkot was awarded the Mkhitar Ghosh Medal of Honor, from President of Armenia, Sert Sarkisian and the Nagorno-Karabakh Gr- Gratitude Medal from Artsakh's President, Bako Sahakyan. She received a bachelor's degree in English and Literature and Philosophy and Religion from the University of North Dakota. She earned her Juris Doctorate from the University of Maine School of Law. Anna, welcome, and thank you for being our guest today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Please tell us about your Armenian heritage and the Armenian communities that you relate to.
1: Um, I was born in Baku, Azerbaijan. My parents were born uh, in Baku as well. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, um, you know, uh, three generations lived in Baku um, in my family. Uh, but my grandparents uh, have a diverse background. Uh, my uh, grandparents on my father's side are from Sunik, yeah, uh, and Karashen um, are the villages they're from. And uh, my mom's side, uh, Kiravabad or Ganja, current city of Ganja, uh, Armenian uh, population lived there uh, for generations. And um, also Nahijavan. Uh, so uh, I would say uh, Sunik and Nahijevan are my um, my roots. And uh, I just wanted to mention,
0: because I think it's very important, um, one of your grandfathers is an Armenian genocide survivor, and he um, went from uh, from fleeing Turkey to Baku.
1: Actually, it was Sunik. So um, it, as the Turkish um, forces were advancing into Sunik, um, they... Uh, I you know the stories that my my grandparents uh, my great grandparents uh, told were were pretty uh, astonishing that you know they were defending themselves in the mountains of of uh, um, sometimes they would run run out even of, of bullets and used cut up uh, spoons uh, to shoot uh, uh, Turks but you know there was a lot of starvation and a, and a lot of um, uh, tragedy uh, so the elderly passed. Um, his my grandfather's parents passed he was uh i want to say between the ages of three or five uh he was he was not a toddler anymore but he was he didn't really remember much so his older sister the the, there were few survivors in the family uh took him as a as a baby and um um, got on a train and to baku and so they fled the anti-armenian violence um, of the advancing Turkish forces to Baku, and then uh, they lived there for about you know two three years, and then in 1918 uh, the the forces came through, and uh, the massacres um, occurred again in Baku. Um, he fled with his sister at the time he was about uh, seven or eight years old. Um, he fled um, by boat. The Russian uh, boats were smuggling uh, Armenians. Um, to the other side of the Caspian Sea and then he they settled there, a lot of the Sunni family settled in Turkmenistan uh, or Tur- Turkmenia um, and uh, lived there until about 1923 and when the Soviet Union uh, was established and there was uh, somewhat of a peaceful um, existence um, he, they came back to Yerevan and, and he grew up and went to school in Yerevan. So. You know, he's observed the, the violence in He He's observed the massacre of about 30,000 Armenians uh, in Baku in 1918. And so uh, it happened in my family, you know, three times in the, in the last 100 years.
0: And that's why it's important to tell this history, because a lot of people um, who are not Armenian, who are trying to understand what has come to be known as the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, um, they often think that the conflict between Azerbaijanis and Armenians began with Nagorno-Karabakh because the Armenians, you know, um, wanted to um, have safety and protection for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. But it obviously did not begin with Nagorno-Karabakh. There's over a century of long and bloody history and, you know, it's it's an unfortunate history it's a bru- it's a very very brutal history with many many different massacres and pogroms and uh, wars
1: absolutely and and it's all interconnected um and and so you know this story that that keeps replaying all these families that experienced this uh several times uh, is that the the fact that there was no justice you know justice not only um, provides reconciliation between the two people, but it also prevents their future generations of committing the same crimes um, against uh, against the people that they that they learned to hate over over centuries.
0: I want to begin by talking about some of the many humanitarian projects that you have done to honor the victims of the Baku pogroms. You completed a project to replant a forest in Tallinn, Armenia, with the Armenia Tree Project, which is a fantastic organization. And I think that is such a wonderful idea to honor people by planting a forest.
1: Yeah, it you know, at first, a lot of these projects uh, that I started, I, I really didn't want to do uh, because I, I felt that, like I didn't want to be associated with collecting uh, and fundraising. Um, but it, it just it just happened that, you know, my, my followership on social media grew and I just couldn't stand back and not do some of these things that I felt were important. So we started off with working with Paros Foundation um, and Hunzoresk uh, Village, where my grandfather is from, uh, doing their um, bathrooms, and so smaller, smaller projects. But this one, uh, The Forest, uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the uh, the Baku pogroms, um, and about two years prior to that, I started thinking about what can I do to um, not just do a memorial site or a hotch car or something that is not, is not a living and breathing project. Um, I wanted to look at the past but also look at the pu- future and a lot of my initiatives are this way um, commemorating the past and helping the existence existing armenian communities in armenian Artsakh, and also looking to the future so the the forest uh, idea came to, uh, about in that uh, fashion i also that year or those two years that i was preparing um worked uh, with an organization to supply uh um Items to the the troops uh, on the Artsakh border, and also uh, worked uh, with another Armenian organization to um, to build a three D printing lab in a sc- in a school in Stepanakir. So it was a it was it was three projects for that one um, event, and the forest was the largest. And it was interesting because most of the donors for that um, project were I would say a little over half were um non Armenians because they wanted to learn you know, they want to plant a forest, but at the same time they learned about the massacres of Armenians in Azerbaijan. So it was it was connecting the non-Armenians um to the story in a way that was was you know, it's a human experience. Planting a tree is is um, is not just for Armenians. So that way I connected the non Armenians is most most of them were Americans. Uh, to this initiative and educated them at the same time.
0: You also helped to build two bomb shelters in Tabush Armenia with Bahapan Foundation. Can you explain why Tabush needs bomb shelters?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I was ready to set up the foundation, um, one of the first projects I wanted to do was work with, uh, Artsakh, uh, kids and, um, and, uh, it just happened that that summer, uh, Tavush was attacked, um, right before the Artsakh war of 2020. In July, our uh, was attacked, uh, bombed, and um, and it was pretty apparent that m- many of these villages in Tawush uh, didn't have civilian bomb shelters, they might have um, opportunities for the military to, to take cover, but but not civilians, uh, so you know pahapan was uh working in the area and they were building these um each one was about thirty thousand dollars and um and uh, you know during the during that attack um i was collecting funds to uh, to support the communities uh but also um to to ensure that it, they have this might be continuing this might be a th- you know you're bordering with Azerbaijan of course you're going to have to protect yourself somehow so um so we built um two shelters we we're ready to do a third initiative uh we were deciding if it should be a shelter or uh, agricultural uh project because they stopped bombing and then the war started so uh those funds that were dedicated for Tavush ended up uh, being the medicine that uh, was was much needed in cared at the hospital,
0: you raised enough money for the villages of Karashen and Khunzoresk in Armenia to receive eye care provided by another wonderful organization, the Armenian Eye Care Project. How you actually raised the money is an incredible story.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm I I personally, um, you know. Um, a lot of my friends know that I, I am very crafty, I knit, and I crochet, and I embroider, and a lot of it is my grand, you know, my grandparents, my grandmothers taught me, and my mom, and, and uh, so I do I did uh, um, embroider a lot of these um, flowers, and framed flowers, and a lot of my friends wanted to, uh, to buy them, and I, and I said, well, I can't you be selling them for myself, it's silly, so um, I sold a lot of these in, you know, little works of art that uh, people have on their desks now um, and raised, I think it was about 1500 or $2,000. And it was, it was amongst friends. It wasn't a big fundraiser, but, um, and uh, that's ho- how we did it. And there's so many creative ways you can do that without actually, um, actually having the funds. And people think that well, I can't afford to donate, I can't afford to do all that, but you can do other things, you know. Um, and that was just a way to demonstrate to my followers that you can, um, you can help Armenia. And, uh, in, 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 you know, all these people received eye care screenings. Uh, there were about eight surgeries, uh, cataract surgeries, and, and, and some people received glasses. So uh, it was a huge initiative um, for the villages, some of them, some of these kids didn't even know that they needed glasses, you know, we'd screen schools and elderly and anyone that uh, wanted to be screened on. And uh, it was literally eye opening to, to them that they really needed the help. And otherwise they wouldn't have gone to a doctor um, and, uh, and find out.
0: And, of, and of course, eye care is so important for everyone because As you know, in the United States, they screen students in schools, and many of us found out by those routine screenings that we have eye problems and we need glasses. I do want to mention that the Adopt-a-Village program of the Armenian Eye Care Project is still active, and truly they are able to do so much with a relatively small amount of money.
1: Absolutely. And and they are very flexible. They are wonderful to work with. So if, if they, there's a village on, on that list, um, you know, that you want to adopt, that's that's great. But if there is another village that they um, have uh, not included for whatever reason, you can reach out to them and, and ask them uh, to create that for you. And, and that's exactly what we did.
0: That's an excellent point. Can you tell us about some of the things that you did? to assist the victims of the 2020 Artsakh War?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, aside from, um, uh, you know, we raised uh, a lot of uh, funds um, and sent directly to um, to Artsakh uh, during the war. So uh, whether it was people that were living there that um, n- that needed food, um, we, you know, we, we made sure that there were, Um, connected to the ones that were providing food or bringing food in trucks. Uh, And uh, medicines, like I mentioned, um, huge uh, trucks of uh, medication uh, to the Stepanakert Hospital, um, provided uh, through um, an organization um, that was working directly with the troops, um, uh, clothing and uh, raincoats and sleeping bags, so that was during the war. Um, and as the refugees were coming out, we, uh, the ones we knew about, we provided uh, cash support would be $200 and $200 each family. Um, but then when the war ended, really the, the big project for me was, um, well, one was definitely uh, the Christmas uh, gifts to Artsakh our our refugee kids, uh, the ones in Armenian and Sunik. And 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 in in Yerevan, um, so we provided customized um, clothing, so customized to the age, and uh, if it was an older child, a book, and if it was a, a younger child, a toy, um, and we did that for about twelve hundred children. Um, some of them were in, the ones that came back to Stepanakert, um, and but most of them were. In shelters in Yerevan, but the biggest project um, that I would say that I did after the war for the people of Artsakh um, in that year in 2021 was um, the census. Um, this is not something that I talked about as I was I was working on it because we want to make sure that the data was protected and you know Azerbaijan didn't uh, didn't jeopardize this project, but we went to every household, every our Artsakh family that we knew about, and found in in uh, Armenia and interviewed them. Uh, Armenian Association of uh, Social Workers uh, actually implemented this. We built a project together. I funded it, and the idea came from the fact that as a Baku Armenian. Um, we, it it is not documented in, in anywhere what uh, 350 plus thousand, fam you know, Armenians of Azerbaijan lost. You know, was it 50,000 apartments that we left behind that each cost $2 million in the middle of Baku right now? We don't know because none of that data um, was taken down holistically. You know, we each individual family know what we lost, but um, but there was no no project like that, so as the war was ongoing, I was in touch with Artak Beglaren, who was ombudsman of um, Artsakh at the time, and asked him if that data was being collected as families were fleeing Artsakh in Armenia, and he said, no, because they might come back, you know, to Hadrut or Shushi, so it's too early to have that, you know, wait until the war is over. After the war was over, I asked again if they were collecting information of damage loss and and they weren't i mean obviously they were reeling from the war Uh, there were bigger problems and uh, and i also talked to armand Tatoyan and asked him if that was data that he thought would be important to have and he said absolutely so i put together the funds and i put together the team And um, we uh, interviewed about, I would say, 98% of Artsakhtis. Some of them didn't want to be interviewed. Some of them we couldn't find. They left to, you know, let's say Russia. Um, But I would say a majority of of them. This is the first census that Artsakh did ever. So for the 30 years of independence, they didn't uh, conduct a census. So this was information that was about medical... Uh, psychological impact financial and property loss um, how many kids you have how many medical issues do you have um, what, you know what did you leave behind uh, what are your psychological uh, needs um, and how many people did you lose do you have you know are there veterans in your family do they are they do they have any missing limbs let's say you know just very granular information that's that was important for me to gather for the Ministry of um, Health of Artsakh and Armenia to be able to to communicate what the actual losses to uh, the government and also to the diaspora organizations that needed help because um, that needed to help they you know they wanted to help but they didn't know who or how or how many people and. How many people lost homes, for example. So that data is available to our Tzach government now. They're using it actively in, in their projects with um, the diaspora organizations. And in turn, you know, it, it's also an important um, tool to be able to communicate to the international organizations of what the actual impact is um, of the war, humanitarian impact. And also it's important for me to be able to keep this information for future generations because right now we don't know how many families were impacted in Abaku, and, and of course, we don't know what happened, you know, family by family during the genocide. So, you know, how many churches did we lose? All those things are just kind of um, lost and, and people are still researching it. But now this, you know, it was important for me to do it quickly because re- being a refugee, I know people move, things change. Uh, people die, you know, many Baku Armenians died very early because of the the psychological and medical, in, you know, impact of trauma, of trauma like that. And so it was important for me to collect it quickly. And we did it between January of 2021 and July. And um, there were about 350 questions each interview. And, and every interview, um, almost every interview was in person. Uh, So they were able to also collect photos um, and uh, property um, photos of property documentation, but also photos in which conditions people lived um, as refugees. So, you know, it was it was uh, finalized um, and and presented, and and the data is you know utilized in Armenia as well by the Armenian Association of Social Workers and in Artsakh, and hopefully one day. when it doesn't become a security issue to share all that information um, that it's studied uh, in university settings, so so that was to me, you know, you know, the Christmas gifts are are good, but I would say this was probably the the most meaningful project that I've done um, after the war.
0: Honestly, I wish that we had um, more time to talk about this. Um, very important topic because it is obviously a, a, a very lengthy discussion topic in itself. But I just want to say very briefly um, that I'm a firm believer that the people who lost property in Baku and also the Armenians who lost property in the 2020 Artsakh War, that they should really document and press their cases in an international court because it's not about money. It's about accountability. It's about an idea that you can't just start a war, capture cities, and then very nicely come in and take over hotels and take over different businesses and gift them to your, you know, loyal cronies in your government.
1: Well, and, and, and it, you know, it, it places that responsibility on the victim. You know, I th- I always compare... Um, and I and rightly so when people say, well, why didn't Baku Armenians organize and do this? And you know, do you ask that to, of the Armenian genocide survivors? Was it the survivors that actually pr- pr- um, that actually pushed for the recognition, or was it their children? Um, when you survive something so traumatic, the most important thing is your family, feeding your family, and forgetting and not remembering. And that was my parents. And I was old enough to remember things. I was 14, uh, but young enough that I was sheltered from that trauma by my parents, I didn't know half of the things that they, they've they survived. So um, absolutely. But even with this data, you know, I have it available. It is not up to Shushi and, and uh, Hadrut uh, refugees to put together a team and the funds to sue Azerbaijan. It's up to the diaspora organizations to um it's up to the armenian government to do that but there's uh what appears to be lack of interest in in supporting those types of initiatives uh, so the data is available and who you know whenever um an organization um or two are ready uh, i will make that available to them to proceed uh but i can't do it alone and um and i want to make sure that the armenian government is also on on Um, the same page with the victims. Um, Are they? I don't know. So, you know, it takes takes definitely many different components to make that happen. And we don't have those available right now.
0: I think one of the assets
1: that we do have um,
0: when it comes to the um, stories of the Baku survivors of the pogroms Is that we have the next generation and even the third generation at this point, their grandchildren, and a lot of these people like you are, you know, extremely well educated, living in different countries around the world, and they have the potentially, they have the resources and they have the will to basically seek justice. I mean, we have at this moment. The decades have passed and we have still Jewish families who are seeking justice for right. things that were stolen from them during the Holocaust, as we know. And uh, we have people um, doing, I, I believe, some very, very interesting research about properties owned by Armenians during the mm-hmm. Armenian Genocide. And of course, you know, this was over 100 years ago.
1: And a key to that is that there is documentation, you know, in many ways um, that does not exist for Soviet uh, refugees. Uh, it does exist for Artsakh refugees, um, and and so if we're not doing something for Artsakhis, um, it's 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 kind of uh, uh, unbelievable that something will be done for the people of of um. Baku. So um, I think that it, there are organizations that could um, help, and uh, if they are listening, I, I would be, you know, more than happy to speak with them. Uh, it does take a lot of money. You know, I think there was a report that was put together by an attorney for Azerbaijan that said Armenia committed crimes against humanity in Artsakh. And that attorney, you know, the report cost Azerbaijan two million dollars. You know, and and yet there's there's so much evidence that crime against humanity was committed in Artsakh, um, by Azerbaijan, war crimes committed. Um, and yet there is no activity on the on the on the behalf of the armenian community in the diaspora or the armenian government they are working on the pow cases that's correct but but from the global perspective of what happened in artsakh there's there's no work being done Uh, and and my census was the data that i would they would need to do that um and it's available and it will be available for a long time so we you know, if, if let's say in 5, 10, 15, 50 years, people um, would like to draw a conclusion, legal conclusion, as to what happened in Artsakh, that data is available.
0: Diana Asfad-Zaturian Foundation currently has an initiative called the Ser Artsakh Baby Gift Box Program. Can you explain to us what that is and why is it important to give this gift to mothers in Artsakh?
1: Yeah, so this this project was kind of a breather for me after the, the census project. I wanted to do something for the kids and I wanted to do something for the diaspora who was clearly drained and traumatized after the war and needed something hopeful to look forward to. So for about six years I've been thinking about this project since reading um, in, I believe it was New York Times that wrote about Finland and how the government of Finland provides each newborn that's born in Finland whether or not they're a citizen um, a box full of necessities up to you know 20 25 items of good quality things like clothing and uh, pacifiers and diapers and and uh, things for the mother hygienic things for the mom for nursing and and uh, and I thought wouldn't it be amazing if we could do that for arta it's a smaller population but you know I didn't have much uh, support and and six years ago, um, um, because I think that were, their reaction was always, why doesn't the government do something like that, why do do we have to do that, but now after the war, it's pretty amazing, um, the reaction to the birth rate, you know, so we have a uh, 36% uptick in births in Artsakh since last October, uh, even even after the war, you know, it went up 36%, so these mothers are trying to populate the you know these families are trying to stay and populate Artsakh um and it's a patriotic act but they do not have the support and many of them you know our taxis are still dealing with psychological impact of the war many of them can't work many of them um are wounded or or are psychologically impacted somehow and or there's no work available so it was important for me to do this now. I said if, if I do this, it has to be done now. So every mother, as she checks out of the hospital, there are three places to give birth in Arta. Um, the major one is in Stepanakert, um, will g- receive a box. And the box itself was designed by an Armenian artist in Yerevan. Um, everything in that box be, was either made in Armenia or purchased in Armenia. Nothing is shipped. Uh, the clothing is done by Laloon, so it was important for me to support Armenian businesses and, and job creators. Uh, Laloon's is, makes amazing um, quality children's clothing that, you know, rivals some of the things that we can buy here. Uh, and um, so it was designed specifically for this project. I didn't want to just buy something. I designed it. The logo was designed so that everything's kind of connected as a gift. Um, the toy is made in Artsakh by an Armenian uh, artist who um, is wood a wood toy a little bird on wheels. Um, a book we designed with uh, a, again a business in Armenia that is a soft book it's fabric book, um, and it's specifically for the this initiative. Um, uh, I named it Ser Artsakh because that's how I felt about about Artsakh, and I wanted to continue bringing up Artsakh with this project because it's about people it's not about the territories that are lost I think we lost focus when we lost this war in a diaspora people are saying well I kind of washed my hands off of Artsakh we lost everything but we didn't you know majority of the families aside from maybe 4,000 families stayed in Armenia majority of them came back to Artsakh and they're living in crowded conditions uh, and still trying to make a life and, and life for their children. So I wanted to honor them in Artsakh, educate people about the life still goes on uh, um, in Artsakh with the people um, and also support the Armenian and Artsakh economy by, uh, by you know, it's it's about 150, 160 boxes a... Um, A month, and uh, each box costs roughly hundred hundred ten dollars. So it's you know between fifteen and seventeen thousand dollars a month. That's being. Put into the Armenian economy it, it does not seem like a lot but for some of these businesses it is and some of them it's amazing like the people that are working on this project donating their time donating the work and i'm like no no no. i want to pay you because you know it's it's also it's not just about our babies it's also about supporting Armenia and the economy so i think it's a very important project probably the most happy project i've ever done because uh, every few days, I get photos of all the newborns, and um, and uh, it's it's just it's a beautiful project, and the mothers are moved to tears because they didn't expect it.
0: You know, many years ago, when I was a teenager, I used to volunteer in a hospital in the United States, and the hospital where I volunteered at, which actually was in Hollywood, California. Um, They used to give a gift bag to new mothers, you know, and they used to give a car seat, which, as you know, a car seat is required in the United States. So they wanted to make sure that they had a car seat on day one, you know, when they were taking the baby home. And so for many years, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do this similar thing in Armenia and Artsakh to show people that, you know their contribution in having children is you know valued and appreciated and you know let's be honest a box of supplies is not going to raise a baby for the amount of time that they need you know but it's but it's a gesture you know it's a symbol it's something bigger than it actually is and having products in there that are entirely made in armenia I think that's a very significant thing as well because it just shows that you can get high quality products in Armenia. You don't have to rely on baby supplies made by you know a lot of the well known American or Russian companies you know right. that are prevalent in Armenia.
1: Yeah, and and there were some things that we could just couldn't find in Armenia, like diapers. You know, uh, actually, I wanted biodegradable diapers so that they don't end up in a trash in Artsakh, but that was not available. Um, so but I still bought it from an Armenian business and they did the wholesale and they you know barely made any money off of it Uh, but they that was it was important for me to to make it come from uh, Armenia Um, and and you say you know that box uh, might not raise a baby but it's a hundred dollars and you know it's half of the half of the salary in a bar taxi um a month's salary so it's it's clo- it's so much clothing up to 6 months of life and it's a lot of it that they can reuse for for but every time they will have a baby hopefully that the project lasts long enough that um they they can accumulate things um but it's you know wonderful quality clothing uh, blankets and diapers and shampoo and thermometer, you know, digital thermometer that they might not be able to afford. Um, You have, uh, you know, not to get into the details of of motherhood, but like, you know, panty liners and bry liners to ensure that they're nursing. Because, you know, a lot of people said, well, why didn't you put the formula and uh, and the bottles? Uh, Well, as soon as she gives them the formula, her milk ends, and, and then she has to buy more formula. So, I wanted to encourage um, nursing. Um, I worked very closely with uh, a Yerevan State University, OBGYN. Um, there was no booklet that uh, was available to give out to new mothers on what to expect when you bring the baby home, just the basics, you know. Uh, so we created a booklet with, <laughs> I went to newyorkcity.gov. Um, and got a a medical booklet uh, from that, um, you know, government agency, Uh, we translated it, and we had Armenian uh, OBGYN add some things and and approve it, and uh, she teaches at State University, so now we have a booklet available to all our taxi mothers on what to do, what not to do, and, and, you know, not give the baby cows milk, and, and things like that, that might not be uh, you know, for new mothers might not be something that was um, clear. So we're also hoping that we can distribute those booklets um, to the rest of the mothers in Armenia. Um, you know, that would be my foundation's next step is to work with the Ministry of Health in Armenia to be able to give those booklets out um, as, a, as a form of you know, post postnatal education. You know, I wish
0: we had honestly um, the time to speak about all the projects that you've done, but I just wanted to mention that um, one of the things that I really like about you, I feel like you're one of those people who sits up at night thinking about, you know, how to help Armenia because a lot of people help Armenia in um, the ways that they are well versed in, in the context of the industry they work in or interests that they have and then there are really great humanitarians who just do all kinds of different projects.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I I am a mom and from that perspective I I know all there is to know about uh, babies, but like I'm not a I'm not a doctor, so it was important for me to be able to provide that information but make sure that it was, you know, didn't just come from the NYC.gov, that it was vetted by an Armenian doctor so that there's, uh, there's um, import, you know, trust in the project. Um, similarly with the, the census, you know, I know very little about social work, so I trusted the Armenian Association of Social Workers to be able to design the way that we communicate to victims in a very human and warm way, because that would be the first time they ever tell their story to anyone. So we wanted to make sure that they were done in person. So as I'm moving a project to project, I'm educating myself and I'm relying on the people that are, you know, I I surround myself with that are experts and I vet them, you know, I don't just blindly trust them. I, um, aside from the transparency of where the funds are going, but, you know, is this really truly an expert that can do a good job or is it someone that has an agenda to move? push something forward that perhaps might be not beneficial to the victim so you know i do never <laughs> i never sleep uh i do think of these projects uh, all the time and that you know i can only do one or two a year but they are very impactful to the people of artsakh and and i'm hoping that this uh turns into you know with more support and more awareness from the diaspora that hey if you want to impact a family, here's a good way to do it, you know, send $100 to a baby, and um, we'll put together a gift box for them, um, but also I want to move to Cer- Sunik, and then Certavush, and then Lori. so um, as we're growing, um, I'm also hearing that people are interested in buying the box for their diaspora and grandkids, and as they're being born because it's Armenian made product. So we are putting together a smaller box without the shampoo and the, and the pacifier and the diapers, but a smaller box of all items made in Armenia and it will be available for purchase so that those, those proceeds will then continue feeding the Ser project. Um, And uh, so that's coming up in July.
0: That's actually really incredible to hear that people in the diaspora are interested in buying the box because of the products that are in it. So that's really amazing to hear. I hope, I truly hope um, that you will have enough funding to keep the project going indefinitely, at least, at least for the children of Artsakh, because, you know, I I speak to um, a lot of people in the diaspora because I live in the diaspora and, you know, and I talk about uh, birth rates in Artsakh and, every, and, and I say, you know, the birth rates in Artsakh are actually increasing and everyone, you know, is so happy and they're just like, I mean, I have literally um, heard some people cheer and clap their hands, you know, when I give them the numbers. It's but, <laughs> but, you know, cheering, unfortunately, doesn't get the job done, you know, so this is a way to make a concrete contribution to something again in a relatively small way you know a hundred dollars is not a large amount of money for someone living in the diaspora
1: yeah and and you know please please tell people that you're surrounded with uh, about this project because we do want to do at least a year and I hope it's indefinite but you know I have funding for about four months and um, we're on average 150 um, 150 babies there are some months that are that are smaller than others but there will be months when we will have 180. Uh, so in the first 10 days we gave out uh, I wouldn't say 60 boxes um, and uh, and that's that's incredible. Um, and uh, I hope that people do donate and I and, and you know if you can only do one that's that's one family that's uh, you know that's a lot of stuff that they will bring home. And also the message that we're not forgetting them the morale is the most important thing for our taxis that morale not to give up um and continue and uh, many of them many of them can leave but they choose not to and and so it's important that we support them and not forget them and um, any donation and and if there are organizations or that want to come in and be, become partners Um, I'm more than happy to, to work with them. If there are churches that want to do, um, you know, any little fundraiser really helps. Um, because for example, like right now, one of the things that we did not include, or you know, it sounds crazy. I don't want, I don't want to embarrass you or the people that are listening, but to nurse there's, they they need cream, you know, nursing cream for the mother. And, uh, you know, for 200, it's about $1,500. That's extra. So I have to really weigh out, do I take out a baby book and include this cream? I have to be able to, to provide, um, and, and I don't want to take the baby book out, you know, so it's like balancing out what's important. And if I had, um, you know, an organization or a family that, um, wants to donate uh, a month worth of uh, that cream, I would love it. You know, it's fifteen hundred dollars that uh, I don't have, so I can include it. So it's, you know, I'm just one person. I'm just a former refugee. I don't, um, I don't, um, I don't know, um, you know, how long this project will last. But I will be going until until the day I die. So uh, if not this project, there will be other other things that I'm I'm going to do to help our doctors.
0: Your memoir is called Nowhere, A Story of Exile. It was published in 2012. It describes events in Azerbaijan and Armenia that occurred from 1988 to 1992. From your first-person point of view, can you tell us about your book and how it was written?
1: Yeah, so um, I had a diary um, that I started writing after Sumgaid, right uh, around the Sumgait massacres, my... Uh, grandmother um, was a teacher of literature and Russian language and um, I had a lot of questions you know why is there such animosity against us I really didn't know the history she told me about about Karabakh uh, conflict and how it started and and I still had questions like why are kids are mean to me in school why are there demonstrations on the streets as the 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 anti-Armenian rhetoric started, so to keep my my sanity, my grandmother thought that I should probably start writing some of these thoughts, and and it'll make me feel better, and she said, write it all down, because none of this will ever happen again in your life, and this is very unusual, and you need to write it down so you don't forget, so to, to her, it was important that I don't forget, um, and she was, you know, also trying to ease my mind, um, and the writing did help me a lot, and throughout my life, uh, um, so I had this diary, I mean, I had the diaries through college, so, you know, it was not some, not something that was unusual, but, but when we came to U.S., um, I realized a lot of these uh, people around me, you know, were, were settled in North Dakota, so, like, German, Swedish, uh, uh, Norwegian descent, they didn't know where their their ancestors came from or what they their stories were and I was horrified like my kids my grandkids might not know what happened to us and my diary was in Russian language so I started translating the diary for my future kids um, and as you know for, for my family for future family um, and descendants and as I was translating it I realized that there were certain things that were not in it and the diary, like, descriptions of our garden or, you know, relatives or things like that, names and who related to whom. So, I started, as I was translating, I started filling in those gaps for them. And it, it became my book, you know, my novel. And uh, I ended with the time when we got, got on a plane to United States. Um, I described pretty much everything that was in my heart. I started when I was 14. And... and finished translating when i was 16 and um, and I, my audience was my family so i didn't i didn't um, take out parts that were really personal you know interpersonal things within the family or my crushes or you know i left everything that was there, and, uh, in the book, and so, you know, it is based, it's not the diary, it's based on the diary, but it's what I wrote between ages of 14 and 16, and when the, um, and I, I typed it up in college when I had my access to a computer, <laughs> this was 1996, and, um, and then, um, and I showed it to a couple of, I was, uh, English, um, and like you said, an English and philosophy double major, but I, I did focus on the um, creative writing. And I did show the the book to some of my professors and um, they encouraged me to publish it. And I thought, oh, no one cares. And this is so personal. Like maybe I shouldn't publish it. But when I had my children, that's when I realized the conflict is still ongoing and their babies, like my kids, are still in danger of annihilation by Azure's. And no one knows about it here. And nothing is being done. And it's been at that point, you know, twenty five years or something like that since I became a refugee and and that's when I met Tatul and Pampasan. He's a great um poet, Armenian poet in Boston and um and he he read the book and he said this is the first it's our historic book. It's a first person account uh and you need to publish it and that's when it that's when it kind of started the wheel started turning. He edited it um he left the voice of the child. Um, English was not very strong. I came to U.S. My English was not very good back then, and um, but he kept it. He kept the book in a way that as you're reading it, you feel like you're were there with me, and uh, and you hear a child.
0: I read the book, and I do definitely hear. You know. Um, your young voice in the book and um, I don't want to make comparisons because you know this is a these are entirely different um, times in history but in some ways it is similar to the diary of Anne Frank you know the famous um, diary of the Anne Frank who was killed during the Holocaust and her diary survived and um, I do want to say that I think some people may think that oh it's a book based on you know the perspective of a child that it might be you know quite boring and sort of you, you know frivolous in some respects but it actually is not that like that at all because when you start reading the book i think within about 15 or 20 pages you get to the events the most horrible events of that historical period that you're describing and it almost immediately starts with the protests in Baku that turn violent and so the book opens in 1988 and you're uh, living in Baku uh, with your family and you write about demonstrations in Baku's Lenin Square demanding that Armenians should be out of Azerbaijan and over time there are more demonstrations and reports of violence against Armenians, random violence. Please explain why this was happening at this time in history.
1: In 1988, um, the people of uh, Karabakh, supported by the people of Armenia, um, used the the language, the mechanics of this Soviet constitution to assert that Artsakh uh, could be independent from Azerbaijan and rejoin Armenia. And, um, and they had, you know, the protests uh, united um, Armenians of Armenia and the Armenians of Artsakh, united in that drive Uh, peaceful protests uh, to uh, rejoin Armenia um, because um, they had that tool within the Soviet Constitution. Also, historically, uh, it is, you know, Armenian, um, it is 98% Armenian population and they used um, their voice uh, peacefully. So in, in a week after that happened, in Sumgait, which was about 30 minute drive up the coast of the Caspian Sea away from the capital, Baku, um, the massacres of Armenian community there. And my uncle at the time uh, worked in Baku and um, worked, had to go up to Sumgait uh, for work um, several times a week. And uh, he was stuck there um, as this was happening and he observed everything. Um, that happened, um, you know, women being thrown out of balconies, um, young girls being raped, burned, um, burned alive, um, er- you know, every piece of property on the street uh, tossed out, um, burned, elderly people. It, 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 was, it was so violent. It was, it was not a big massacre, um, you know, by all accounts, there were about 30, 40 people um, killed and there was no way to know the total number, because it was all Soviet um, Union, it was covered up by theories. Um but he was so horrified by what he saw, and then the troops, the Soviet troops came in, um, they were there, they were watching it happen, you know, he, he told us there were Soviet soldiers standing in and this was the Soviet Union's way of allowing Azerbaijan to be a tool against the um, the secession of Artsakh to um, to Armenia, because then um, other republics used were brave enough to use that tool within the constitution that allowed um, for them to secede to assert their independence. And that's you know that's why Gor- why Gorbachev said that. Karabakh Armenians uh, stabbed his perestroika, his plan of uh, improving Soviet Union in the back because they opened that gateway. And so massacres of Armenians were used as a tool against Armenia to stop what they're doing against the Soviet Union, but all they were doing is, is trying to, um, to serve their independence and their um by joining Armenia.
0: There is actually a general consensus among historians that the Sumgait Pogrom was one of the events that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was already destabilized at that time. I don't want to spend our time talking about the wider history of this period too much because I want to focus on your story and your book, but very briefly, I just want to say that there is evidence that some government officials in Sungai expected to be executed by the Soviet government for allowing the pogrom to happen, but that did not happen.
1: Right, because nothing like that ever happened in the Soviet Union. You know, we do not have um, even one... There were were instances of murders, right? Uh, Some my my father always told us a story of going to um, Sunik by train from Baku, and the elderly always kind of guarded the kids with their bodies in the train, in the aisle of the train, because Azeris would pass by and just stab kids, um, you know, uh, in, in the side or the back, and so, um, so there were instances of violence like that, but not massacres, and this was a massacre that was allowed to happen under Soviet rule, and and so I think that in in many ways they, they probably did expect that uh, to be put down, but nothing was done and these massacres are allowed to happen. And the only reason that the troops, the Soviet troops, entered, um, they said they were late to Baku too, but the only reason that they were um, allowed to enter um, was, you know, and to stop some of these, I remember the the massacre you know the the demonstrators would go by our house and they would be stopped by the Soviet soldiers to check not to check do they have weapons or knives to check if they had boxes, wooden boxes um because they didn't want the Soviet Lenin square to be burned, you know they were setting up camps then in their campfires they they were more worried about the marble steps of the Lenin Square than they were about people being killed on the way there. So it was more about keeping Soviet Union intact than about the Armenians.
0: You have said that even in peaceful times during the Soviet Union, the Armenians of Azerbaijan generally did not feel equal to Azerbaijanis in Azerbaijan and that there was racial prejudice against Armenians in Azerbaijan.
1: Of course. I mean, the, the, it, it was not open. Um, obviously, the Soviet Union, you know, you're, you have a friendship of nations and a friendship of people, so all of it was uh, the front. Um, but then the reality was, if you were Armenian and you were trying to do well in school, and then there's an Azeri that's you know slated to be the first in your class, you're not going to get the good grades. Um, you're going to get the lower grades. The same with getting into universities. Um, if you're Armenian, you can't just get there on your merits, you have to bribe people to get there, uh, to get into universities. Um, any large uh, entity, like government entity or any enterprise, um, was led by Azerbaijani and really <laughs> run by an Armenian who worked for him. Um, so, you know, the that was, that's why we, you know, we always say we build Baku because every architectural um, endeavor, um, every uh, scientific endeavor, um, even the oil industry was founded by an Armenian family. So um, the Azeris were there, to rule it in, in fact, um, but actually who ran the country was the Russians, the Armenians uh, and the Jews. I think it's
0: very important for people to accurately understand what Armenian-Azerbaijani relations were really like in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union dealt with its many ethnic populations by suppressing cultural and religious practices and conflicts. No one in Azerbaijan would have talked about racial tensions publicly or openly because they would be dealt with swiftly and severely by the government of the Soviet Union for talking about things that they were not supposed to be talked about that were against the Soviet social order. But the racial tensions were always simmering under the surface in many of the soviet republics as we have seen there are multiple points of what we call the post-soviet conflict countries
1: yeah that's correct and and you know I, i i would want also to point out that although the um the Soviet mentality was, you know, that we're all equal and there are no differences. There are language differences and um and and the Armenians are um in Armenia, for example, still spoke the Armenian language in Russian schools. So it was mostly i I wouldn't I wouldn't focus so much on the Soviet uh Union because Armenians in Armenia could go to church and could um speak Armenian and do the practices of the Armenian culture. It was the Azeris that used the um their power over over the Armenians. They closed our schools in nineteen seventies. Uh Armenian schools were all closed. That's why I didn't when I was born I didn't go to Armenian school. I went to Russian school. That was the lesser of the evil right or do i go to aziri school so when armenians of armenia we came and we didn't speak armenian you know my dad did speak armenian because his parents spoke to him but my mom didn't and she was raised um you know speaking russian so you know it was not our fault um it was the the and so i i wouldn't i wouldn't focus so much on the 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 soviets trying to um because there are other republics that spoke their language, and then there are other uh, republics that continue their, you know, religious practices in secret, Um, uh, but we couldn't even do that. I mean, the only church that was left in Baku um, was stripped down to almost like a museum. You know, I've been there as as a museum attendee rather than as a child who was brought to church with her parents, so... Um, and, um, but at the same time, it was shocking when these massacres happened because, yeah, we knew all these things. Um, but interpersonal relationships, you know, my parents had friends who were Azuri. They went to, to school with them. I went to school with them. Um, I, you know, my parents worked with them and then you have those same people turn away from you whether it's children or adults, and then in many cases, to you know, they, they would send the, the massacres, um, to those houses, you know, um, we had a neighbor who, um, told the, that we were still there, um, and, uh, we ended up, we were not there, uh, thankfully, we, um, uh, by that, by the ni- January nineteen ninety, we were already gone. But she sent people to our house before, and um, the the other neighbor, Azuri neighbor, said, "Leave, you know, leave. They're not there." So one neighbor s- saved us, Azuri, who was afraid of her God, and another neighbor wanted our property, wanted our silverware and uh, dishes and uh, furniture, and sent uh, people to kill us. So uh she was successful um after uh in, in January 1990 um my neighbor my one of my best friends um mom and grandmother were uh killed and he he hid and um and they just went in my my grandmother was my grandmother was russian and so she stayed behind uh, um trying to to sell all the things that we left but she ended up not being able to because her kids were Armenian, and everyone knew that. So if you're trying to sell anything, then you're putting a bullseye on your forehead. So she just left everything and went to Russia. Um, and, But she would see those neighbors go in after the massacres, after the, the bodies uh, were taken away. Um, they would go in and just rob it blind. So... And that's the shocking part, that you knew these people, you lived with them, you went to school with them, you know. Um, there were a couple of people that told me stories of the universities, you know, having university professors just grab Armenian university um, professors by their by their hair and just pull them in the hallways. Like, these were educated people, and um, but the ones who weren't educated, that were afraid of God. Um, ended up saving us you know so
0: it makes you question the relationships that you thought you had you know like you thought there were of a certain character but
1: then yeah and then that anger that hatred that's and the reason that it's there is that there was no justice after genocide like genocide didn't exist so that animosity although it was subdued it stayed you know, uh, Azeris were taught to ma- how to commit genocide by the Turks when they came to Baku in 1918. They replicated the Armenian genocide to a T in Baku in 1918, and then all of a sudden it's Soviet Union and everyone lives in peace. And and my great grandparents always said, you know, trust but verify pretty much with uh, with when you you living and working with them. Um, and some of it was demonstrated and some of it wasn't. So it was shocking to me as a child. Why are the Azeri friends that I had down the street um, were calling me names? You know, what did I do?
0: After the Sumgai program, you received news in Baku about the program in Kirovabad, which happened in November 1988. Kirovabad is the second largest city in Azerbaijan. Today it's called Ganja. There were 100,000 Armenians living in Kirogogabad. And then you describe in your book that the violence in Baku was increasing. There were riots in the streets and people were breaking into homes, as you said, and they were literally murdering people. And then there were the Baku pogroms, which began on January 12, 1990 and lasted seven days. And one of the... Um, shocking things about this that is a historical fact is that this was not a random riot. Organizers had the names and addresses of Armenians living in Baku and they could only have gotten this information from government records.
1: Yeah, so Kirovabad was um, right Right before the the Spitak earthquake, so it was November, and uh, um, that's when things start getting weird. Um, you know, Sumgait was like, oh, it's just a, some random provincial town, and that things like that could never happen in Baku. And Baku Armenians were like, you know, we're intellectual, we're multicultural; that could never happen. It was probably some fluke. And then, you know, I I should also note that that this is information we were receiving from. People like my uncle and and neighbors hearing from their family members uh, in Sumgait who left because none of it was on the news. It was it didn't exist according to to the the Soviet news. Um, everything was it you know, was perfect um, and and so Sumgayit um, was a, a fluke. And then Kirovabad, like okay, that's a bigger city, bigger community. Now the difference between Baku and Kirovabad is that. In the 70s, when they closed the churches, they started spreading. There was a area of Baku that was called Ar- um, um, Armenikent. and it was where all Armenians lived, and, and they were protected, and they protected themselves. And there was very, you know, my. But then they started giving apartments, new apartments, to our families and spreading them all over the city, uh, not connected to each other. And so when people say, well, why didn't you gang up and protect yourself like people in K- Kiraabad, which they did, they fought a good fight. Um, and that's because we were not together. We were surrounded by, you know, imagine being on the seventh floor of an apartment and surrounded by other apartments of people you don't know. And then you have, a, you know, someone give away your address and, and you, you're up there. Either you jump, which many people did, and some people are just, you know, lowered their children down the the uh the balconies uh, uh to run but you can't really protect yourself. So so Kiribud was different, but it, it's that's when it started getting spooky and that's when the the tanks came in, the tanks came into our streets because there was all this bravado against Armenians and then it started turning, Azeris started turning to bravado against the Russians. And so when there was anti-Soviet rhetoric on the Lenin Square and the demonstrations, that's when the tanks came in. They didn't come in to put down the, the riots, uh, put down the violence. They came in to say, hey, you know, um, okay, you're you you crossing the line here. Your family made the decision
0: to leave Azerbaijan permanently because... At that point, I think it was clear to the majority of the population that staying was impossible. But you didn't leave for about a year and a half because you couldn't just leave. You had to figure out some kind of escape strategy.
1: Right, and and there are a couple of components. So there was the, the psychological component of my, my mom. This cannot happen in Baku. Everything will calm down and we'll go back. Soviet Union will take care of it and put them down you know put down the riots and protests uh, and then there was the actual mechanics of leaving okay we could maybe exchange an apartment with a family in in Armenia who wants to live in Baku uh Isiri family um or we sell it somehow um or uh we just leave um and then there is the, the the actual meat of the issue is in the Soviet Union you can't just leave um to another city you have to have permission of a and that's how they contained people you know um they didn't want people just moving around and you know probably didn't want them interbreeding so each adult has a card a work card where you're allowed to work and and you would have to get permission to leave to move and to live somewhere else uh, in another town even uh not even another country so So there was my mom who was like, this will calm down. And there was my dad who wanted to leave, but like, you know, couldn't. So um, majority of Baku Armenians left in the summer of 89 after Kirovabad. It was was difficult to even walk to school in the spring of 89. Um, That's when my, you know, my parents or my grandparents um, would walk me to school, even though it was like three blocks away because you never know, you know, who is going to be, in. and I was attacked, um, by a neighbor, uh, at one point, um, physically, and, um, you know, um, attempted, a uh, sexual assault, uh, I was 11 years old, and that was based on, he came back from the riots, um, and was, like, eager to kill somebody, kill something, so, uh, although I never told my parents, I told my grandmother at the time, she's asked, um, asked me not to tell my dad because it was he would kill that man and then they would kill us so i didn't tell my parents until uh, we we got to the us um but majority of the it was impossible to do anything get bread in the store because you're armenian and even when my mom finally decided to leave september of 89 going and getting the flight tickets to yerevan was was very dangerous um, because then you out yourself as an Armenian. Even buying a ticket to leave, um, and the, at that point the, the flights were still working. So we left, and my dad, my dad couldn't leave until October because they wouldn't give him this card. They were traumatizing him by putting him in dangerous situations, um, making him walk to work. He, the public transport was not working, so he had to go to work for that month to be able to get that card to leave. And he had to walk through the demonstrations. And he many times pretended he was Azuri. He would have a cap and they would wear these black or green um, headscarves. And he would have it under his cap. And then when the demonstration, you know, the crowds would gather around him as he's walking to work or from work. He would pull it down the the scarf and he looks so Armenian. So, you know, he put himself in danger just to get that card so he could work in Armenia to be able to feed his kids. And um and after the earthquake, I mean, there's so many refugees after the earthquake. And then us coming, you know, so it was it was important for him because. And then and then finally he, they gave him the card and he left. Um, and for about a month he was. Um, in bed, I think the stress really, really did a number to him too. Um, He slept with knives under his pillow because the demonstrations were at that point every day. Um, And that's, I think the remaining Baco-Armenians that were killed in the 90s were mostly elderly that couldn't leave um, or families that just couldn't accept it.
0: After escaping to Armenia, your family faced the tragic reality that Armenia was unable to adequately assist the hundreds of thousands of Armenian refugees coming from Azerbaijan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were the, the hundreds of thousands from the Spitak earthquake. Uh, there were many from Artsakh, uh, many from Baku. Um, Soviet Union was beginning to collapse at that point um, there was nothing in the stores um, you know trying to find a piece of bread there were lines and lines and then there was a blockade and you know we received a hundred rubles from Garry Kasparov the chess player who was um, a, a, I think a world champion of that that year and he got a diamond crown, and he sold it and gave it to all the refugees from Baku Uh, and we you know split up evenly we received 100 rubles and that was it Um, I think at one point we received a truckload of of wood to heat our our um, little room where where we lived Uh, but that was it and you know, who couldn't blame Armenia? One Armenia was blockaded, uh was dependent on on the Soviet economy which was disintegrating. Um, there was earthquake, there was the war and and so there was so much animosity against us because we we're the new face and you you know, blaming us that we kind of caused it and really you know, to us it was no you caused it because you had those demonstrations for to free artsakh and you didn't even think about us so there was this almost like repelling from uh, us and us repelling from from the erban armenians who who uh, blamed us for not speaking armenian so baku armenians were traumatized i would say twice um and uh, maybe three times i mean we left everything, many of us lost um, family members to violence, many of us who are physically attacked uh, as children, and uh, then we come to Armenia and are called Turk, and then we go to our diaspora, and the diaspora doesn't really accept us, um, because we don't go to church and we don't speak Armenian. So um Baku Armenian community is uh, incredibly self-sufficient, very intelligent, very educated and have high standards for their kids and very proud Armenians. I know a lot of people don't realize that, but we put in a lot of money into the Armenian, um, causes Armenian, uh, you know, economy, artsakh economy. So, uh, we do it very quietly, um, in the, you know, as a community, uh, and, um, but I think that there's this, you know, many many elderly passed away from stress. You know, my dad had two heart attacks and and just survived cancer. You know, and a lot of it was the stress of not just escaping that type of fear. You know, I remember that fear on my skin and um, but it also like how we're gonna survive. You know, not only are we not able to work and there are no jobs and we're living this you know, horrific conditions in uh, Yerevan, but there's no end in sight. Like, it's getting worse, and so, you know, many, many people left. Many went to Moscow, Russia, and many people um, went to United States.
0: I really don't think that anyone could have imagined when the protests for Karabakh started that it would lead to the complete ethnic cleansing of the entire population of Azerbaijan and of course similar ethnic cleansing of Azerbaijanis from Armenia. And this is a point that I do repeat often, which is that no one can tell you what will happen in any given country where there is an Armenian community five years from now And uh, there are Armenians in the world, in many countries, and no one can predict what will happen in any one of those countries. And because of the grim reality of being a refugee in Armenia, many refugees from Azerbaijan chose to use their refugee status to immigrate to other countries. And I think this is such a great tragedy from a moral and practical standpoint, because as you said, the Armenians of Azerbaijan are smart, skilled, resourceful, well-educated people and they could have been an asset to Armenia and instead they became very successful people in other countries. But that's only the practical point of view. I think what's important is the moral point of view, which is that every Armenian should be confident that they have a home in Armenia in right. case they need that home and we need to make that realistically possible
1: and the ones that stayed that didn't get the refugee status from united states or wherever you know 32 years later they're still living in those decap you know de- de- debilitating conditions of of those uh dormitories um one-room dormitories hanging on to their refugee status because the government promised them a home and and uh, there's generations of trauma um, psychological trauma from living in those conditions some of them were placed next to um, mentally um, uh, deranged you know people in, in hospitals right next to them so imagine living all that way for 30 years um, because you can't find housing and you don't, you you don't have the the job to be able to but but you know so i think that the ones that could sell the home and and leave um the ones that left and had the countries uh like united states or let's say france or germany or canada that that really supported them to be able to stand on their feet um i think my pa my parents probably would have stayed in armenia had there not been such animosity because I I think we would have been able to survive and put ourselves on our feet. We're, you know, smart and hardworking, uh, family. Um, I think it was just my father was, you know, how, how can we continue living in, in that condition and not be wanted here? Um, you know, we were not wanted here. They couldn't wait for us to leave and at least the people that, that, uh, we interacted with, um, but I think that would be very different, you know, if you're talking to another family that lived outside of Yerevan. I think I think most of the animosity was was in Yerevan. Um, and many Baku Armenians with roots in Artsakh actually stayed in Artsakh, and um, they they fought in Artsakh all three wars. And I have very good friends that were refugees, several families uh, from Baku, and then lived in Shushi and now refugees in Stepanakert, and they won't leave so, you know, I think that it all depends on, like, where your roots are, our roots were in Hunzaresk and, um, and Nahichivan, and Nahichevan too you know, my my grandparents on my mom's side were forced out of Nahichevan, moved to Baku again, to disperse um, the population so, uh, yeah it, it's unfortunate, I would say that um, it was a brain drain for Azerbaijan, but it was a brain drain for Armenia, and um and it's still happening. You have you know, Artsakhsis who were not treated very well during the war in Artsakh. Uh I mean in in Yereban. so I, I called I called that out and I was you know, on social media and I was attacked for for whatever reason, but it's it's the truth.
0: I personally heard reports that there was um, some war profiteering going on with the raising of rents in Armenia and yeah. of course there are despicable people. That's why we call them war profiteers and it's a it's a tragedy and it happens in every war.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um but I think I would say that I'm thankful for the opportunity to live here and be able to help Armenia from afar. If I can't be there. But it took a good twenty you know, twenty years to come to terms with what we've seen and observed. And uh, I didn't come to Armenia for the first 22 years. And when my book came out and um, State of Maine, I worked on the State of Maine recognition of Artsakh. uh, I received the medals and and I felt like, you know, I think this is time to go to Armenia. And I think that was the best decision for me because no matter how many times I try to forget what happened to us in Baku and the experience in Yerevan, never really felt at home. Uh, until I came back to Armenia and just all kind of made sense that this is what I should be doing. I want to conclude our interview by
0: briefly talking about how this history is viewed today in Azerbaijan. And there's something in your own personal biography, which is actually a perfect example of this. And that is that you... Participated in a documentary film about the Artsakh conflict in 2020 with the highly respected Azerbaijani writer Akram Eilisli. And Mr. Eilisli was one of the most revered writers in Azerbaijan. He received the highest awards from the state, and he even served in Azerbaijan's National Assembly until he published a book in 2012 called Stone Dreams in which he talked about Armenian and Azerbaijani relations and particularly the Baku pogroms of 1993. After the publication of this book, he became a pariah. He was effectively placed under house arrest. He was harassed constantly, has criminal charges against him, and serious discussions were held about revoking his Azerbaijan citizenship and deporting him and an Azerbaijani politician even offered a $13,000 reward to anyone who would cut off his ear and this is an example of what happens when you talk about historical facts in Azerbaijan that took place only 34 years ago And there are still hundreds of thousands of witnesses who were alive at that time, and no one will talk about it in a way that will contradict the official propaganda and cover up of the Aliyev regime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, you can't you can't blame these families um, who are just regular families who have seen it, and you know, people my age have seen the massacres, um, and they're just trying to survive under a regime that, uh, profiteers off of the lies, profiteers, uh, um, on the animosity, you know, Aliyev's father's animosity toward Armenia was demonstrated in Ahitjavan, um, and then, you know, Aliyev's, uh, continued animosity, uh, is, is pretty clear, um, in the last, uh, uh, 30 years, um, since, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, there are some major, you know, major issues that you can have, like, aside from being jailed and being on home arrest, like, uh, like the author you described, but, um, being a pariah, uh, losing your job, losing, uh, Everything around you, your friends, your colleagues, your, your kids might not be able to get a job uh, if if you are if you speak out uh, and uh, God forbid you get killed for speaking out. For whom, you know? And then you have the the thirty plus years of of brainwashing uh, that Armenians actually started the massacres, so they themselves were killing, and they just wanted to start the uh, Artsakh movement or it was the Russians that did it, you know, there's always this, uh, this, like, twisting and spinning and, um, of, of facts, or that, you know, I have even friends from school that I connected, uh, when the book came out, just to warn them, right, I changed some of their names, and, uh, they love me as, as a childhood friend, but they hate me as an Armenian, so there's this, this weird dichotomy, and, and and it's because they grew up in the, in the atmosphere of, of hate and villainizing, uh, calling, calling us cockroaches. And, um, and so, so yeah, I was, I was in that documentary. I would say that, um, I'm very particular about projects I'm part of. I don't want my voice to be used, uh, in any way, but, but what it is and this documentary maker, um, you know, Francois was wonderful, and he was trying to be very neutral. Uh, the documentary is called "Under the Same Sun," uh, and it was fully funded. And it's very important to me to be part of the documentaries that are not funded by Armenians, because I feel like right after the war, they're all this war profiteering, trying to find fund off of Armenians and then sell tickets to Armenians, and um, and then show it only to Armenians. So this this documentary. Was done way before the war. It was actually was about to be launched in March of twenty twenty when COVID started, but came out a little later and uh, fully funded by um, this Canadian filmmaker. Uh, and he tried to show both sides. You know, I would say I would disagree with him on some of the um, some of the pieces that he decided not to keep in the film that I felt were important, including a scene with three hundred. Baku Armenians uh, gathering in a church in San Diego that was very powerful and moving and he he excluded it but but uh, aside from that I you know this is a pre-war look at how two people living under the same sun um, and and what type of what type of reality there is on the ground
0: I do want to mention the ethnic cleansing of Armenians that took place during the Second Artsakh War, and that was the ethnic cleansing of thousands of Armenians from the territories that were captured by Azerbaijan, from the major cities of Shushi and Handrut, and other smaller towns and villages, and even today, as we're speaking, other Azerbaijan's soldiers are issuing threats and intimidation tactics to Armenians living along the line of contact in Artsakh because the objective is to ethnically cleanse them from the places where they are living in Artsakh. And I truly believe that the entire objective of the war was to completely ethnically cleanse the population of Artsakh and Aliyev and his um, ally Turkey were unable to do it because the Armenians were able to resist to the degree that they were able to resist.
1: And and don't don't discount Russia. You know, if, if Russians did not uh, intervene and come in as peacekeepers, you would not have Artsakh the way that you have it now. Um, in the setup, and I would not be able to physically go there through the Lachin corridor because you would not have that kind of protection and, and the muscle that uh, sometimes Putin uh, flexes when, when it benefits him. So, um, absolutely, there's ethnic cleansing, but it's continuing now, you know, in Xuxi. Aliyev comes to Shushi very often, and they have, you know, from my friends there, they have, like, fireworks uh, that they hear all these like ribbon cutting ceremonies and, and it's ghost town. There's no one there. No one wants to live there. Maybe just military and, and, uh, contractors that are building roads and things like that. But, um, he wants to demonstrate that he's there and they are there. And, uh, that is, you know, that I would say that that does play a role and uh, people are affected by it, but they're defiant. Similarly with Azeri music playing on the borders, you know, loudspeakers of our Azeri music. Um, and, and that's psychological warfare. Um, they did the same thing to Baku Armenians when the when Spitak earthquakes happened. Um, and all these Armenians died in the earthquake in 1988. There were families, um, including mine, that received cards congratulating Armenians on um, killed Armenians, and um, that's when I said that things start getting weird. Is when we started receiving those people celebrating the street that the Armenians died, and balloons, and you know, sh- you know, champagne, and and things like that. It was. Uh, it's very similar, um, and they do this to us um, very often um, throughout throughout our history. Uh, we, of course, can't comprehend doing something like that. Um, but it works. It scares people. But I would say uh, Artsakhsis are defiant and strong and uh, know that they love their land, and they play the Armenian music back to them.
0: Anna, I would like to thank you and really commend you for making the decision to share your family story by writing your memoir and doing lectures and interviews as much as you're able to do. I would also like to mention that you shared your history with the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative, which is named after Aurora Mardiganyan, an Armenian genocide survivor who wrote a memoir about her horrific experiences of the Armenian Genocide. Entire books have been written about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and the relations between Armenians and Azerbaijanis. I think there should be even more scholarship done on this topic because I think the current um, books that we have are not enough. My objective today was to focus discussion today on your memoir, which is about the ethnic cleansing of the almost the entire population of Armenians from Azerbaijan during the First Artsakh War in the 1990s, we could have easily spent an entire day discussing your book because there's so much information in it. You're a great humanitarian with your charitable endeavors and a passionate advocate for human rights, particularly the rights of the Armenians of Artsakh. Our viewers can make a donation to the Anna Asfatsatorian Foundation at asfatsatorian.org.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and the, you know, the, the foundation really breathes um, uh, on, on the donors and the supporters and, um, and the initiatives that I, I put together um, hope, hoping to bridge the two, the diaspora and the Armenian Artsakh. So um, I appreciate your support and I appreciate the support of your uh, viewers. I, um, I will say that uh, it, it is not easy um, to speak on this topic and, you know, and I don't fault the, my, my community members from wanting to forget and move on. Uh, so if you can speak on our behalf, um, you know, it, it really does help and I appreciate the, the time and effort you put in putting this together and, and highlighting um, Baku Armenians and Artsakh Armenians' plight uh, for just being who we are, Armenian. Anna, thank you for joining us today
0: and sharing your story with us. I would like to thank our audience as well for watching. Thank you very much. My guest today is Anna Asfatzatorian-Turko. She is the president of the Westbrook, Maine City Council and the founder of the Anna Asfatzatorian-Turko Foundation. Her memoir is called Nowhere, A Story of Exile. She is joining us today from Westbrook, Maine.